0: Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the field. Uh, with us today is Joaz Vagemakers. He's from Utrecht University and the author of a new book. Uh, Salafism in Jordan, A Political Islam in a Quietist Community. It was recently published by Cambridge University Press. He's also the author of a biography and analysis of uh, Abu Muhammad al maktasi A Quietist Jihadi, also published by Cambridge. And he's a contributor to the Jihadica blog, um, and where he writes frequently about issues of Salafism and political Islam in the Arab world. Uh, Yoasa, welcome to POMAPS. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about your book, Salafism in Jordan. Uh, why don't we start, and maybe you could just explain to us, what what is it about Salafism in Jordan that uh, that merits a book, and, and what is it that, for the average kind of non-specialist, uh, is interesting about Salafis in Jordan that would make them want to read this?
1: Well, I think Salafism in Jordan is important for several reasons. Um, One of the reasons is that we don't hear about it a lot. Uh, Salafism is obviously in the news all the time. Um, It's in the news in Western European countries, for example, as a threat usually, as connected to terrorism. But it's also important because it has to do with the relation between religion and uh, non-religious people, for example. What role does religion play in society? So I think for that reason, the study of Salafism in general is uh, important. But with regard to the Middle East, we usually hear about Salafism in Egypt, uh, sometimes in Yemen, in Saudi Arabia, obviously, but not so much Jordan. And the reason Jordan is important is because Jordan is actually a country that um, some of the most important Salafi scholars in the world live or used to live. Uh, that is certainly true for um uh, Muhammad Nasir al-Din al-Albani, who was perhaps Mm -hmm. the greatest Salafi scholar of the 20th century, who died in 1999 in Jordan. He spent the last 15 to 20 years of his life in Jordan. And it is also certainly true for jihadi Salafism, uh, the the more radical branch of Salafism, um, because Abu Qatad al-Filastini and Abu Muhammad al maqdisi two of the most important jihadi Salafi scholars in the world, also are Jordanian residents and citizens. So Jordan actually, despite the fact that the country does not get so much scholarly attention as the the other countries I mentioned, actually has a very important, uh, internationally important Salafi community. And the reason I think that uh, a broader audience, just uh, apart from the people who are uh, interested in Salafism as academics, should read this book as well, is that Salafism is a trend within Islam that confronts people who are not religious or who have a different religion than Islam, or even people who are Muslims themselves, but not Salafis, with a trend within uh, Islam that really shows them the the difficulties of dealing with religion that does not fit well into the box of a liberal democracy. Mm -hmm. So how do you deal with people who are not terrorists, who are not criminals, who do not commit any crime but are nevertheless people who espouse a certain form of religion that does not square well with the with the ideals and the standards and the norms that most people in a liberal democracy usually have. And that in, in that sense, that, that confrontation of views within the context of a liberal democracy, or in the case of Jordan, a mild dictatorship, if you want to call it that way, uh, is very interesting and I think also beneficial for non-specialists.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, in, in the first chapter of the book, you actually do kind of walk through what Salafism is and, and how we should think about it. Um, how would you describe uh, what makes Salafism a distinctive trend as opposed to maybe more familiar versions of political Islam, such as the mm-hmm. Muslim Brotherhood? Right.
1: Well, I define Salafism as the trend within Sunni Islam, uh, whose adherents claim to imitate and emulate the first three generations of Muslims as closely and in as many spheres of life as possible. And they do that in the sphere of theology, for example, that's the most important one, but also in the s- sphere of, of legal issues, the um, uh, Sharia, uh, Islamic law, but also in the personal ritual sphere of all kinds of uh, daily life things that they do, And all of these aspects to Salafis are extremely important. and They claim that they imitate and emulate the Prophet in the first three generations of of Muslims as closely in as many spheres of uh, of life as possible. And the thing that differentiates these people from, for example, the Muslim Brotherhood is on a doctrinal level that they very often have different views on theology.
0: And they care about theology. And they (laughs) care
1: about theology very much. I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood is not really interested in that the Muslim Brotherhood basically as as members of the Muslim Brotherhood themselves say our form of islam is a very general form uh, their slogan is al islam hu al hal islam is the solution and that's basically how far their ideology goes obviously they have more detailed ideas about how that should be implemented but not much more detailed actually salafis have hugely uh, hugely detailed Ideas about all this sort of stuff and they have discussions about theology that have no practical relevance for the lives of ordinary believers whatsoever but they nevertheless find it important to discuss these things simply because they need to hammer out all the theological details of their doctrine so that's one area where they differ another area where they differ is that they have a tendency not always but usually have a tendency to circumvent the schools of Islamic law whereas the Muslim Brotherhood Mm -hmm. generally adheres to these schools of law Salafis usually don't, and also in rituals and their daily lives, they're different. You can even tell the difference from the way they dress, from the way they, for example, the beards and the, the veils, etc. Uh, Salafis very often look different from members of the Muslim Brotherhood. And a final area where they're very different is with regard to politics. The Muslim Brotherhood is a very politicized uh, group, and Salafism, for the most part, some of them are politicized, but for the most part, they're not they tend to stay away from politics or even Mm -hmm. anti-politics, as we would normally think about politics. So that is um, just a a short list of of the most important differences between them.
0: So let's look at Jordan itself then. And and as far as I'm aware, this is the first like really serious book length uh, uh, work on Salafi movement in Jordan. And I learned a lot Uh, From reading it, because it's and and what what I found interesting is how many of the personalities and the figures that that populate the book don't really come up in the kind of the normal political you know analysis of the day. And so let's talk a little bit about where this community of scholars and, and of Salafi members, where do they fit into the overall structure of Jordanian politics? Uh, you talk about them as having this uh, very kind of interesting relationship with the state and with the regime. So explain like where Salafis fit into this constellation of the Jordanian monarchy, state and, and politics?
1: Right, well in Jordan of course there is the opposition like the Muslim Brotherhood, the Islamic Action Front, so there are other people who uh, you might call the opposition in Jordan. Then there is the the section of society that you could describe as loyal uh, for tribal reasons, for um, because they're royal, uh, lords of the royal family, uh, particularly East Jordanians um, people of East Jordanian descent, of tribal descent, and Salafis used to be quite a separate category altogether. They used to be quite aloof from politics altogether. This was mostly due to the ideas of Muhammad Nasr al-Din al-Albani. Who this is the
0: quietest trend that, exactly. you, that you talk
1: about at the beginning. Exactly. And they were not just quietists in the sense that they did not engage in political activism, but they really didn't care about political activism. They did have political views, but they kept them to themselves. Uh, to give you an example, Muhammad Nasr al al-Albani was once asked about Palestinians living in the West Bank, and if they could not fulfill their religious duties under Israeli occupation. And al-Albani, despite the fact that many of his supporters were of Palestinian descent themselves, said, well, if they can't live up to their religious obligations, if they can't be good Muslims in the West Bank under Israeli occupation, then they should just leave the West Bank and move somewhere else, which was politically, of course, incredibly controversial. And even many of his supporters to themselves well we admire you as a scholar and we think you're a great sheikh but this is really going too far i mean you can't ask the palestinians to leave simply because they live under a foreign uh, military uh, occupation but to well, al-albani this was simply applying part of a, a concept in islam that says if you cannot live as a proper muslim in any given area leave because the world mm-hmm. is big enough and you should just leave and al-Albani was very much the type of person who would arrive at a certain religious conclusion, irrespective of what people thought about it, and irrespective of what the regime thought about it. And he's he's clashed with people over, over mm-hmm. such issues, not just with his students, but also with, with other scholars. And that was very much the trend that Salafism was like.
0: And the Jordanian monarchy was very happy to have an Islamic movement or an Islamic community that basically preached uh, stay out of politics.
1: Well... They were, but at the same time, they sus- they were quite suspicious of this movement because they didn't really know what Salafism was about. And uh, who was this Al-Albani? He was from Albania originally, and then he came from Syria. And what, what kind of message did they preach? So the Jordanian monarchy was not unhappy about them, but they were also suspicious. So they did at one point expel Al-Albani. But after the death of Al-Albani, and even in the later years of his life, Um, in the years approaching his death, the movement became more and more, uh, what I term in the book, uh, loyalist. So they became more and more explicitly loyal to the regime, like many scholars in Saudi Arabia are, for example. So they did not stay aloof from politics. They didn't say, okay, we're just not going to bother with politics at all. But they became more and more explicitly loyal to the regime. So they would be willing to give uh, an oath of fealty Mm -hmm. to the king. Uh, They would explicitly say that they would work towards the stability and the security of the country. They praised the king. Uh, They would, even if the king mentioned them in newspaper interview, for example, or if if they were mentioned by the security services, even there was one sheikh who proudly pointed out to me that he was mentioned by uh, a member of the security services. So they became more and more explicitly loyal and as such were also more susceptible to control from the regime. So whereas they used to be quite independent, Their doctrinal views are the same, but their relation to the state has grown much um, tighter. They're much closer to the regime right now. And the result is also that um, they are sometimes demanding from the regime that the regime accepts them as a loyal group that has sometimes, in some cases, even um, replaced Sufis as the loyal group that is willing to counter-terrorism, for example, Mm -hmm. because they perceive themselves as as ideally placed to um, counter all sorts of threats because they say, look, you know, we are Salafis, we are proper Muslims. If anyone can talk these people out of having radical ideas, it's us. And what have Sufis ever done for us? They've never, they've been quietists, they've never been involved in politics, but they've never really played any part, any significant parts in trying to de-radicalize people. And there are examples of of quieter Salafis Mm -hmm. having done that. So they've gone from independent to loyal, and They also want something in return.
0: Now let's talk about that uh, that last point. Uh, so, um, can you like talk through the uh, the relationship between this quietist and then loyalist uh, Salafi community, and then this also quite large and important uh, Salafi jihadist community uh, which is growing in parallel um, how do they relate to each other and uh, and and, you know do they share the same roots the same origins and how has the growth of the jihadist movement affected the uh, the the salafis
1: well they don't like each other Uh, that will come as no surprise Uh, they don't like each other because they don't see each other as salafis i mean if if i would have this conversation with a salafi from jordan uh, he or she would have immediately corrected me and said stop you refer to these people as Salafis, but they're not. They're actually mm-hmm. fill in the blank. And the reason for that is that they have views, um, if I can get slightly theological here, uh, they have views on the um, the exact components of faith that differ from one another. Jihadi Salafis accuse quieter Salafis of not including acts as part of faith. Traditionally speaking, um, Salafis have said, faith consists of uh, beliefs in the heart, speech with the tongue, and acts with the limbs. This is how they Mm -hmm. phrase it. And jihadi Salafis say, well, you don't include acts with the limbs because if you did, to cut a long story short, you would condemn the rulers of Jordan and of all other Muslim countries as unbelievers because they don't apply Sharia law, or at least not properly. But quite a Salafis in turn say about the Jihadi Salafis, no, we do actually have the right views. What you do is you exaggerate the importance of acts as part of faith, and you apply takfir, so the excommunication of non-Muslims, far too quickly, and you are in fact extremists. We are doing the right thing. You're extremists, so they don't so they they don't see eye mm-hmm. to eye on this issue, and as a result of that, they they very often call each other names and they use theological terms like the Murji'a and the Khawarij, which are very old uh, movements mm-hmm. within Sunni Islam to uh, vilify each other and to disqualify each other and to make sure that other people don't see them as proper Salafis. Now, um, the growth of the Jihadi Salafi movement is something that is is quite a source of concern for quite a, uh, Salafis indeed. And even long before 9-11, in fact, uh, I think from the mid-1990s, if I'm, if I'm correct, uh, quite a Salafis have published books and um, articles and fatwas um, condemning jihadi salafism condemning terrorism, condemning violence condemning extremism in bekfir, mm-hmm, extremism mm-hmm. in excommunicating non-Muslims, or Muslims as non-Muslims and uh, these are things that are of grave concern and uh, I attended for example in my research of this book um, countless hours of, of, of lessons in Salafi mosques and Salafi centres and the Salafi scholars that I listen to the quietists were clearly quite reluctant to discuss issues such as Syria, uh, politics in general, and when pressed by their students, they would discuss these things, but then they would very often say, well, you know, we have to be Mm -hmm. loyal to this country. Stability is very important. Look at the alternative. We don't want to end up like Syria or even like Mm -hmm. Egypt, where there's been a revolution that was um, subsequently um, turned back by a coup uh, the year after. So... um, these are held up as the alternatives, right. and uh, quieter Salafis are very much concerned about that. Sometimes uh, spend entire sermons discussing about the proper way to view jihad, the proper way to view takfir, So all of these issues do come up, and um, the quieter Salafi movement clearly sees itself as the perfect antidote to the radicalization that is going on among some jihadi Salafis. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, probably the single most um, well-known export of uh, outside of Jordan. Uh, when you think about Salafism in Jordan, it would be Abu Musab al-Zarqawi and the role that he played in uh, in the jihad in Iraq. Right. Um, and, and so it's interesting to think about how someone like that could come out of this quietist community or the Salafi community at all in the way that is it's being described here. So let's dig into this a little bit more. Are, are they working with the same basic community? Um, would someone like Zarqawi exist in the same milieu as uh, these other Salafis? Or are they really distinct in terms of where they fit so- sociologically, culturally, politically?
1: Yeah, I think they are distinct because uh, Abu Musa Abu Zarqawi was really the type of man who was a, a petty criminal uh, when he was young. who was not very religious, who suddenly didn't know a lot about religion, and who was very ill-informed about many things, in fact. There are uh, quite amusing stories about his uh, uh, time in prison, for example, in which he, uh, for example, said that uh, Americans were really great people because they uh, are much more likely to be religious than people in European countries. And it was told to him, of course, that if you're a proper uh, jihadi, you really shouldn't like Americans. So uh, there are these anecdotes that that show that uh, Azhar Qawi was not really someone who grew up in that religious atmosphere and he was radicalized in later in life and he sort of became a, a born again muslim if if i can put it that way and his born, being born again happened in a context in which jihadi salafism was the thing to adhere to if you wanted to be a mm-hmm. proper radical whereas for example in the 1960s or 70s it might have been communism or marxism uh, in, at that particular time, when he radicalised in the 1980s, uh, it was jihadi Salafism. So he was he was not brought up and did not grow up in that milieu, but he was drawn into that milieu by the people around him. And I think that um, he was not the only one. There were actually quite a few, uh, far less well-known, mm-hmm. of course, than uh, Azarqawi. But there were quite a few of them like that. And it's interesting that Abu Muhammad al maqdisi the man who, who took Azarqawi more or less under his wings very often complained, uh, sometimes privately, sometimes publicly, about the lack of knowledge that many of his students had. And I and I remember distinctly that when I interviewed Al-Maktasi and we talked about some of his works, he often, when I related some of the things that I'd read in his books and, and showed that I clearly understood what he was talking about, he often nodded in approval with the look on his face, finally someone who understands what I'm <laughs> saying and he's not even a salafi. So um, that, 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 Sense of frustration was was almost palpable mm-hmm. when talking
0: to him. Actually, why don't we uh, for one last thing that we could talk about here is MacDissie himself, and um, you you previously wrote a whole book about him, and he shows up in this book uh, at several points. But let's bring it up to the more or less to the present day, and some of the shorter pieces that you've written about the role that MacDissie has played. In the Jordanian regime's dealings with ISIS and uh, the Islamic State, and uh, the and the, the kind of politics around that, where you have Ammachi himself, it's clearly coming out of this jihadist Salafi camp, and is would seem to be quite an influential and quite dangerous uh, intellectual. At the same time, he seems to at certain points. He's released from prison. He's allowed to have communications as a way of going after ISIS. Talk about, talk about this a little bit and how this fits into this tapestry that you've been painting. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, Abu Muhammad al-Makdasi was uh, arrested quite a few times. I don't, can't even remember how many times. That's how often it is. And he was clearly seen as dangerous and as a radical by the Jordanian regime because his ideas were quite radical. And he, he, he didn't mince words even about the Jordanian regime itself. He, for example, condemned democracy at a time when de- democratic elections were being held, etc. And he was arrested for that, imprisoned for that for several years, and he was accused of, of being a terrorist, or at least encouraging people to commit terrorist attacks. The problem with al was that he never really was involved with anything terrorist, but at the same time he did preach that message. But he preached that message only to a certain extent, because he, he was always critical of the people who went at least in his eyes, who went too far. And he always said, look, I am very committed to this project of trying to establish an Islamic state, a proper Islamic state. We shouldn't wage jihad for jihad's sake. We should have a goal. And the goal is not jihad. Jihad is a means to an end, not an end in itself. And as a result of that, he was quite critical of Abu Musa al-Qawi, and he was later quite critical of the Islamic state. And I think... I'm not sure, because I, I don't know what goes on in, mm-hmm. in, inside the heads of the people who make these decisions, but I think that the Jordanian regime may have thought on several occasions, yes, Abu Muhammad al maktasi is, is a dangerous individual, but the problem we're coping with now, the Islamic State, is even more dangerous. And al maktasi is the sort of man who we can't really use against the Islamic State, but if we release him, he, on his own accord, will preach against the Islamic State simply because he's against them ideologically. And yes, he's radical, but he's less radical and certainly less violent than the Islamic State. So you could argue that, what's the saying again, that the, friend of my, that the enemy of my enemy is my friend or something? So they could have argued like that. I don't think, however, that the Jordanian regime has actively used Abu Muhammad al for that. I think he's too principled for that. Um, he uh, was tortured in prison uh, on certain occasions. He uh, has spent so much time in prison that if Al-Maqtasi was cooperating with the Jordanian regime, he was doing a very bad job at it because he was imprisoned all the time. And that's not really getting something Mm -hmm. in return. So I do think that the Jordanian regime is happy that there are at least some people who are against the Islamic State from a radical perspective, but at the same time they continue to see al as as an enemy and as representing something they don't want either.
0: And... On the flip side of that, uh, how has the rise of the Islamic State and the threat that it poses, how has that changed the circumstances of the Salafi community in Jordan?
1: Well, it has uh, changed particularly the Jihadi Salafi community because there used to be a situation in which people would more or less one, and after the death of Abu Musaf al were more or less what I refer to as the Maqdisiyun, the supporters of Abu Muhammad al-Maqdisi, and the Zarqawiun, the supporters of Zarqawi with the Maqdisiyun being far more willing to listen to the scholars, and the Zaqabiiyun attaching far greater importance to fighting, to Mm. activism, to actually going to a place and and waging jihad, and not the sort of bookish knowledge that uh, Al-Maqdisiyun seems to exemplify. That split between these two has been reinforced, and also been changed slightly, by the rise of the islamic state because many of the zaqawiyun the supporters of azawawi have also become supporters of the islamic state whereas many of the supporters of ummaxiyyah have continued to oppose that development uh, and the differences have become entrenched they've become uh, more violent even some of the supporters of ummaxiyyah for example have been beaten up mm-hmm. uh, by supposedly by supporters of the islamic state and it has even split families. Uh, that, that, For example, one brother supports the Islamic State and one brother supports Al-Qaeda, for example. Now, it wasn't always like that. I remember interviewing people in 2013 who could sit in the same room and one person person would say, I support the Islamic State. Another said, I support Al-Qaeda. And another saying, I support all of them. And they could still be friends. But the polarization and the um, the, the partisanship, I might almost say, um, in this issue created a situation in which that sort of thing was no longer possible. The, the 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 enmity between these different groups ensured that they grew apart and you were either a supporter of the Islamic State or al-Qaeda, and never the twain shall meet.
0: Well, we've been speaking with Yoas Wagamakers uh, uh, from Utrecht University, author of the new book, Salafism in Jordan, Political Islam in a Quietist Community. Uh, Yoas, thanks for joining the program. You're very welcome, and thank you.